Hello, Internet! Welcome to episode 153 of the Assorted Calibers podcast. The Second Amendment podcast is a little bit for everyone. I'm Weird Beard, and with me as always is the greatest, the most wonderful, the amazing, the sun just sets around her, Aaron Paulette. How you doing, Aaron? My God, you're creepy. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you actually blew out the meter on your intro. (laughs) Discord could not cope with that level of Muppetness. Um, I'm 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 doing all right. Uh, Dad has been moved out of the hospital and into a local nursing home temporarily while we try to get him into the local VA permanently. Um, partially because the hospital needed the bed, and partially because he needs physical therapy. And hey, at the local old folks home, there's a physical therapist for that. But, uh, you know, the day he checked in, somebody came down with COVID, and the the message didn't say whether it was a staff member or a patient, but now they're on lockdown for two weeks. So, I mean, we can can talk to him over the phone, and we can, like, give him stuff, but we can't visit with him. So, you know. Well, that kind of stinks, and I I assume your father's not vaccinated. No, he is vaccinated, so oh. that's that's one worry we don't have. Oh, that's good to know. Yep. But, uh, you know, you would think that the elderly population in Florida would be with the first vaccinated. But, no, no, someone got COVID. We've got to lock the whole thing down for two weeks. Whatever. I don't even try to understand this stuff anymore. Yeah, well, I was actually, we were talking about, I was, uh, my, uh, as we were walking, walking, uh, walking around town uh, back from school, we stumbled on some of my, my daughter's classmates, and they were playing, and and uh, the neighbors were, were there. We were all people we know in town, and it was just one of those like, yeah, we're all vaccinated. We're like, we were just wearing our masks just as like a common courtesy, and just like just take these things off, and got talking about like someone who was an, an, an that uh, one of these people knew somebody who was an anti-vax person and it was all that and uh you know we got going on about that a little bit of the same like oh shame 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 but i pointed out the fact that well you know when it comes to how the government handles and is handling all of this like if you want to to behave in such a way to make the soil super fruitful for people who are not going to trust the vaccine or suspect that this whole covid thing is a hoax this is how you do it like when you start either lying about stuff or doing policy because and not telling people why you're doing the policy and not giving putting goals or interests or anything at like that or change the rules yeah that's gonna get people suspicious so mm-hmm. ugh, it's just a <laughs> weird and terrible time but yeah again yeah it's one of those like yeah we're all vaccinated and and uh, i i went up to maine this weekend for for mother's day this is the first time i've Okay, I will I will I will say it right now. I did venture into Maine twice to drop my daughter off. It was when my parents were getting vaccinated and they had when part of to get the covid shot, I I I guess I don't remember saying it having having to say it on mine, but essentially they had to ask they they had to state that they had not left the state in the last x days and uh, and they just said, "You know what? We We'd rather not lie about it. So can you drive into Maine? So literally we did like a drug deal drop off of my daughter. <laughs> in like the ba- We went to the Kittery Trading Post, which is a large um, 
It's, I mean, it's got a massive gun store in it, but essentially it's got like a clothing store on the first floor and a gun store on the second floor. And it's got a massive parking lot. And so he drove all the way to the back of the parking lot and like exchanged my daughter. And then and it is literally like a half mile from the New Hampshire border. <laughs> so literally dropped my daughter off and then quickly scooted back over the border into New Hampshire where I was safe. <laughs> because technically speaking, I would have had to quarantine for 14 days. Ugh. But finally, now the restrictions are gone, gone, from, uh, gone from Maine. And I'm not fully vaccinated, but also, let's be honest, the whole like two weeks to get maximum antibody things. It's like you're like 80 percent like immune after your first shot. And now I've got the second shot. And it was it was a week under my under my belt is one of those like there's no way I'm catching this thing like either I'm I'm not I'm catching it because the vaccine didn't work and and it it, it is not affecting me whatsoever or I'm you know or I'm I'm not catching it and so it's but there's still some people like oh no but you got to wear your mask like forever and ever I'm just like why <sighs> it's just it's I'm I I'm so frustrated with all the the mismatch of the we get to follow our, the science except when there's science that we don't like and so we don't follow that. But the good news is I went back to Maine, and the weather was wonderful. Okay, <laughs> cool story, bro. <laughs> Pretty much, uh, it, it, yeah. It really comes down to I've I've really enjoyed the peace and quiet mm-hmm. of the past week, and I'm. I'm just trying not to raise my blood pressure for anything. And so, of course, now you have things that are threatening to ruin my calm. So let's just dive into the main topic, realizing that there are some things. It's just, no, I'm not going to read it. I'm not going to get worked up about it. I'm just. <sighs> so so which do you want to talk about? Weird, um, the usual ATF hijinks. Or um, a shocking, surprisingly tone-deaf statement by the government. Shock hard. Uh, let's ease you into it. So I don't, I don't actually have some cry some more where for, uh, for this week. Aaron, thank you so much for, 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 for hipping me to that, uh, for, for that audio. Like, I mean, it's one of those that sums it up so wonderfully. <laughs> yeah, this, this one I just, I, I had to put it, I saw it and it was actually like showing up on like discord servers as like a meme. And it was, it was just like, it was one of those, like they just screenshotted it. And I'm just like, is that, is that an actual thing? Or did someone fake? Cause of course so many times they'll, they'll change the text around and all that. And so I looked it up because the, the title was literally the joke. Democratic Senator says government can com- combat gun violence the same way they tackled the opioid crisis. Oh man! <laughs> so the the Democrat senator is, is one Dick Durbin, and uh, I believe he is he from Jersey. I'm not sure, but uh, I mean, there's not a a ton to 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 unpack except for he's from Illinois. Okay, well, good good for him. I'm thinking who's <laughs> who's the one I'm thinking about from from Jersey. Yeah, either way, <laughs> I, I I don't know. <laughs> All these old malicious white guys look the same to me. <laughs> but, I mean, first up to say <laughs> the we can combat gun violence the same way we tackled. That is, that is, <laughs> that is a past perfect tense. <laughs> yeah, as if to say, mission accomplished. Yeah, the, the 
I don't believe the numbers have been released on what we, how many overdoses we experienced as a nation in total uh, it, during during uh, during the full lockdown year. But uh, I, I I have seen some initial numbers to say that they would be considered astronomical. And okay, uh, you kind you kind of got ahead of yourself. We never completed the sentence. Mm-hmm. You didn't say the words opioid crisis. Oh, yes, yes, yes. T- to tackle gun violence the same way we tackled, yes, past perfect tense, uh, the opioid crisis. Again, yeah. And like the numbers that are going to be released for, for last year where people have just been in lockdown and unemployed and nothing else better to do but to drink and drug themselves into a lull is, I'm sure, going to be outstanding. Uh I have a I put a put put a link in the show notes. I just did a quick search and found that in 2019 it was nearly 50,000 people died of opioid involved overdoses in the United States. Uh, and so <laughs> this is like absolutely crushes the 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 gun death numbers and of course we must note that that about 60 percent of the gun death numbers are suicides there's a small percentage of it that's that's justifiable homicides but it's literally anybody that caught a bullet and died yeah i mean i was about to say i'm pretty sure the homicide rate is somewhere around thirty thousand. i i could be mistaken but does that sound about right to you yeah, that does that that does that does that does sound about right, and that would that would be total homicide because it's yes. it's usually between you know thirty five and forty thousand every year, uh, mm-hmm. very varying from year to year, and only and 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 about half the uh, it's ha- about half the homicides in the United States are due to gun violence, which means half is due to any other thing, and so yeah, that that all adds up about about right, you know give or take 15 to set you know 17 17 grand deaths and uh and then yeah double that so yeah no that's the yeah the number of people killing other people on purpose versus people killing themselves with drugs on accident and and it is it's 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 near it's nearly double and he is saying that oh we're gonna solve guns the way we solved that <laughs> I'm very curious at the color of the sky in his world. <laughs> so, yeah, I just wanted to put that in there only because it was just so ridiculous that when I saw that, I went, I, literally my first thought was, there's no way that's, that's, that's hilarious, but there's no way that's true. That, that has to be a doctored image. And yeah. Sorry. No, go ahead. Just I thought you were done. It has to be a doctored image. Mm-hmm. It, has, it has to be a doctored image. And nope. Nope, it's legit. I looked it up and said, you know what? I'm putting that in the show. So just to put a bow on this, I want to point out that Dick Durbin is claiming that he can and will, well, not specifically he, but he, the government, can solve this epidemic of gun violence in exactly the same way the government has solved the drug problem. You know, the drug war, which has been going on since before you and I were born, and the drug war, which is just yet another example of how prohibition doesn't work, he's now claiming that prohibition not only does work, but it has worked. So, yeah, I just, I I know you said this, but I really want to drive it home 
that he is either being deliberately disingenuous and therefore arguing in bad faith, or he's in cloud cuckoo land and shouldn't be in Senate. He should be in a hug me vest. I guess you could argue the other angle is that he is just so aloof and just breathing the rarefied BS air that, that, that some of these elite, I mean, I know this guy has been, been, been in the Senate for like a hundred years <laughs> and he was, he, he, he first became a Senator when drugs were legal, <laughs> uh, but uh, he's, he's been in the Senate for so long that like, I'm sure he just gets fed some of the same like BS polls and, and, and spun numbers that other people and at this point in time, as far as he knows, because I mean, they all live in like gated communities now. It doesn't matter who they are after you've been in like the Senate for over a decade. You're just a you're just a multimillionaire living living in a mansion somewhere with servants. And the fact that like, oh, people are probably maybe even an aid sent up a thing that's saying, Oh yeah, we solved the opioid crisis. Congratulations. But yeah, either way, I wanted to make fun of him for it because I mean, yeah, you've said it exactly. Correct. Is the, the drug war, uh, the old joke. I'd like to thank drugs for winning the war on drugs is <laughs> yeah, it was, was it Nixon that actually started? was like the first on the drug war. You always see like the Elvis becoming like the, the, the DEA officer lie with Elv- Elvis and Nixon I do not know yes you are correct in 1971 Nixon declared a war on drugs and drugs won yes and literally yeah Elvis Presley was helping him fight the war on drugs as a as a public regulation project and Elvis Presley overdosed on drugs so yeah I don't know if he technically overdosed on drugs or just the health effects from 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 his habits but either way, it, 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 the, the level of irony to that is both crazy and the amount of time that it has been since, I mean, God, I was, I think I was a teenager when Nixon died. What year did Nixon die? Now I want to know that. Uh, it was sometime in the 90s. I remember Hunter S. Thompson's eulogy of him. Let's see. He died in 1993. So I was 14 years old. So yeah. This, this has been going on for a long, long time. It obviously doesn't work, but, uh, but, uh, but Dick Durbin sure thinks that it, it, it's, it, it'll work only if we do it a little bit harder. <laughs> All right, now on to the damaging Aaron's Calm. And t- t- don't worry, Aaron, I w- I, we won't dive too deep into this because, frankly, I don't know how much there is to dive into this. But the, uh, the ATF has... Uh, issued um it's like a proposal yeah so i don't know what the official word for this is hi we're the atf and we're going to make these regulations laws and we're going to give lip service to the fact that there's going to be a comment period but we've already made up our mind as to what we're gonna do Mm -hmm. so really the only reason we're asking is we're trying to determine how much of a fight we're going to have and whether or not this is going to kick off the second civil war thanks that's what I get from this. Yeah. And, and, and Aaron, you make a great point about the, the commenting uh, statement. If, uh, if, if you are so inclined in the show notes, there are links to the, uh, to the ATF pr- proposal. And, 
It's not the summary. It's in the just. I don't know. It's a hundred page PDF. I refuse to read it. Yeah, it's it's in the it's just in the 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 basic the proposal uh, section uh, for the in the ATF links, and you can click and and uh, and submit a uh, submit a comment uh, to this. But Aaron, you're a hundred percent correct. They're they're under no obligation to do anything with the comments except for accept them. But yes, so the proposition is. Essentially, they are providing new definitions for firearm frame or receiver. And I've got to say, I skimmed through the 100-page document that that this is that this is summarizing from, and I really couldn't find anything extra on it besides because we said so. <laughs> but essentially, let me let me read from the. The slightly larger uh, summary is uh, uh, any firearm part falling within the new definition is identified with a serial number must be presumed absent uh, an official determination by the ATF. So essentially they're saying you, you've got to presume that something is a it is a receiver and AK, therefore a, a legal firearm unless the ATF says it isn't. You know who that reminds me of? Mara Healy. That that is that is exactly what this is this this is reminding me of. I mean, obviously we've got on the ATF level, uh, essentially, but they're saying like anything that contains part or or part uh, parts or components of the firing control group or the bolt, uh, or just they've given a long list of parts that can be contained by the quote unquote receiver. And so therefore if it's in there. And so of course the big one that's being talked about right now is the AR 15 where you've got, yeah, I was, I was going to pin you down. It's like, or it contains the bolt. Well, that's the upper receiver Mm -hmm. and that isn't the firearm according to the ATF. So how are they going to solve this? Are they going to declare that the upper receiver is also a firearm? Are they going to literally make the claim that you have to have a gun and a gun to make a gun? Mm-hmm. They are that that's that's their claim. Yeah, but and so therefore, you know, you know, name your group. You know, Smith the Wesson, Colt, Springfield Armory, whatever. All these Ruger, they make their AR-15s. Are you saying that they're actually going to need to stamp two separate firearms, uh, two separate serial numbers onto the both the upper and the lower because one's a receiver and the other's a receiver and. And you're gonna have to like you know put bolt you know fill out two forty four seventy threes when you buy a rifle, <laughs> and like even I, I was getting into this is one of those like okay so you know or you've got like the 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 striker system is is part of this so it's one of those so a Glock you've got the lower receiver it's got all of the the you know the trigger and the fire control group and all of that but then the the it's the slide that contains the striker. And so technically speaking, the slide of the Glock could be considered a firearm by this. If, if the ATF says so, I believe there is an exemption in there. Um, mm-hmm. Another gun that I was thinking about was the predecessor to the SIG uh, 320 is the, the, the P250. Uh, and that's essentially a 320. So it's the modular little chassis gun, but it was hammer fired. So it had the, the, the hammer system all in it so it's had the hammer it has the it has the slide rails the trigger the fire control group all of that is all contained in that little chassis uh thing and so yeah there that's got it except for but the breech face is part of the slide so you know let's let's be honest the atf is stuck in the 19th century Mm -hmm. because their definitions work 
for bolt-action rifles and for revolvers. But the 1911, literally made over a hundred years ago, continues to baffle them, mm-hmm. at least according to this, because they are now claiming, you know, the the lower is the legal gun, but now the upper is also the legal gun. So you've got a firearm plus a firearm to make a firearm. Why are they... (laughs) I mean, for an organization that was founded in the 20th century, they still aren't up to terms, up to speed with 20th century technology. Not, not... We're not even going to talk about 21st century technology. I mean, I can even joke a little further, and I may be technically wrong on this, but I'm pretty sure... On a Mosin-Agant, a gun first designed in 1891, it's the, I believe the serialized part on that is technically the barrel trunnion. Uh, that the, 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 the top part that's got all the, that's got the serial number and the, and, and the armory and all the stuff stamped, stamped on it. That's the barrel trunnion, the actual like part that, uh, that you actually put the bolt into and that the magazine is attached to. And all of that stuff is what we would call the receiver of, you know, say a, you know, a, a, Sp- a Springfield 1903 or, or, or similar bolt action rifle. Uh, that's technically not the not the serialized legal part so the even even that technically is 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 baffling the atf in this instance <laughs> i i can't read this and it's just so va- even the, uh, the in the 100 page document uh, it's literally just got essentially because we said so like again i was looking to see they've obviously they're 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 targeting parts kits and they're declaring that something that can be readily readily finished into a firearm is now a firearm and i'm just like okay so what's readily and they don't it, as far as i know they don't say i didn't get a chance to read the whole thing i was just like aggressively skimming it and we, we talked about that last week where yeah. um you know, one of the definitions involved like eight hours of work in a gun shop is considered readily. Yeah. You know, I, I was under the impression that part of the reason for this was to define readily. Yeah. They, they're trying to define everything else. Yep. I mean, look, it specifically says provide definitions for readily for purposes of clarity. Mm-hmm. And you're saying you couldn't find it? I could not. I, I, I can do a quick search. <laughs> Let's see. Hmm. Uh, there are 62 matches. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you search. I'm just going to pound my head into the wall, okay? Yeah. Yeah, I'm just not even... S- oh, meaning of terms. It doesn't seem to say. Like, I just don't even understand. Okay. But... All right, so let's get down to something that I do understand and is threatening my calm. Mm-hmm. So we talked about 4473s, and at the bottom of this, the ATF, well, previously, after holding a 4473 for 20 years, the FFL could dispose of the record. Mm-hmm. Now the ATF wants it held on to in perpetuity, although they do graciously grant that these paper forms and records over 20 years of age may be stored in a separate warehouse. Of course, you know, they probably want to digitize them so they can get their registry. That That's exactly where I was going with this. The fact that, you, you know, 20 years later, you know, no, we still got to hold that paper. Why do you care? Well, it's probably for this. Mm-hmm. 
So, all right, I found one thing in here, a process that readily, a process that is fairly reasonably efficient, quick, and easy, not necessarily the most efficient, speedy, or easy process. Factors relevant to this determination with no single controlling include the following time, how long it takes to finish the process, ease, how difficult it is to do, expertise, what knowledge and skills are required, equipment, availability, expense, Scope, the extent of which the subject or process must be challenged to finish, and feasibility. And that, that literally defines nothing. Uh, yeah, that, that is all I'm finding. I'm, getting cl- I'm clicking it closed. I'm done. <laughs> is clearly there is, there is some goal. There, this is, there is some goal behind it, and they are pumping this word salad in there to make it so that they make it happen again the 1994 federal assault weapons ban was literally they wanted to ban all semi-auto rifles and possibly handguns in the united states and they knew they couldn't do it because people had 1911s in their sock drawers and people had semi-automatic rifles and shotguns for hunting and those people were the 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 bulk of the diehard second amendment voters in america and so they needed to keep those people happy so they picked a, a gun made by the evil communists who were in the midst of a cold war with and a, a, a goofy, expensive, funny looking black rifle made by Colt and said, you know what? Anything that looks like this will make illegal. And overall, people are like, yeah, doesn't doesn't bother me. And maybe it'll make these horrible people go away. And this is very much reeks of this, that they're they're doing this for a reason. Uh, They're clearly doing this to try to essentially declare 80 percent kits to be uh, uh, to be firearms and therefore just get rid of 80 percent kits, because if you're going to still have to go through a background check and 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 fill out a forty four seventy three and. And this is not just something you could just and you can't just toss it in the trash if the if the assembly doesn't go right. Why would you not have it professionally finished? And then the the other the other reason is I, I definitely see this as a as as a way to go after the AR-15 by declaring parts now that you can readily buy to convert your existing gun, such as the upper. Because again, the upper is really the the key thing. I mean, you've got like the. Uh, what is it? The AR fifty. What's what's that little bolt action fifty caliber single shot fifty caliber conversion kit for an AR fifteen? I, I want to say AR fifty, but yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, but there's just all sorts. I mean, you can convert an AR fifteen into a crossbow. You can convert an AR AR fifteen into an into like a spear gun. There's like you can convert it into a muzzle loading firearm. There's all sorts of goofy things that you could stuff onto an a- an AR-15 lower, and then of course, yeah, anything from you know 50 Beowulf, you know, down to 22 long rifle, mm-hmm. and so the just the nature of suddenly now making each and every one of those conversions into its own firearm, while I guess in theory they could say. Because they don't, they're essentially saying that it needs to be mother may I. So it's not, go, they're, they're not, they're very clearly not declaring anything that meets these rules is the receiver. Instead, they are saying anything that, that can be described as such could be a receiver and, mm-hmm. and very well may be unless the ATF really literally writes you a letter, uh, on the on the federal level, this is very similar to bump stocks and arm braces, where literally 
a company would would created an arm brace and said, "Hey, ATF, what do you think of this?" And the ATF said, "This is cool. This is good." So a couple other companies said, "Well, we can make something similar to that, but not infringe on their patent. What about these?" And bump stocks is another example on the uh, the first kid, the Aikens accelerator, and that was declared a machine gun. And then I don't know who the next person to invent a bump stock was, but that they they invented one and they submitted theirs and the ATF said that was not a machine gun and that was cool until all of a sudden the ATF said it was a machine gun again and none of these took an act of congress none of these is written down in law this is just ATF ruling and that's that's where it gets scary and you said it best with the this reminded uh reminded you of Mara Healy because this is exactly how Mara Healy is handling it in Massachusetts she's She's the attorney general, so she is not a lawmaker. She does not have the power to make laws or sign laws into effect, but she has the power to, quote unquote, interpret laws. And both because Massachusetts is extremely friendly to anti-gunners and 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 giving anti uh, giving gun owners a hard time in this state is is kind of the, the state sport. Uh, she has been essentially given the green light to do a very, very radical uh, interpretation of our assault weapons ban, which is just a copy of the 1994 assault weapons ban signed into Massachusetts state law. And, uh, well, I, I, I've got an audio clip here of, of pretty much her exact words from a, a Vice News story. The AG's office say they fielded about 100 calls in the first couple of weeks after the ban was announced to clarify what guns were legal and what guns weren't. We're saying that the law applies. Those are copies and duplicates, and we're going to enforce the law with respect to to the sales of of those copies and duplicates as as well. But the AG's office hasn't put out a definitive list of banned copycat weapons, just the two-step test of attributes that new guns might have that could be considered illegal. And gun store owners feel like they're left to guess at what's okay to sell. But from the Attorney General's point of view, making that list of banned guns public would mean going back to the same cat and mouse game that lawmakers and gun manufacturers have been playing for years, where manufacturers would create new versions of banned guns to evade the law. So essentially, she doesn't want to define what an assault weapon is in the state of Massachusetts because otherwise people will essentially build compliant firearms and she just doesn't want them to build firearms at all. And I am seeing this being another angle of how this could be enforced. So I'm going to talk briefly about unintended consequences, and I'm going to give you a little history lesson. Back when the British Empire controlled India, they had a problem with cobras. And so they offered a bounty on cobras. And as you would expect... A lot of people went out to uh, kill cobras and present them to the government for a bounty. The problem is that some smart person realized, if we kill all the cobras, the government's going to stop paying us. So more than a few people actually kept and bred cobras so that they could then turn them in and get money. This is unintended consequences. The government actually made the problem worse because, you see, uh, when the 
government got wind of this and decided they weren't going to pay anymore, there was no reason for these people to keep the farms, and why would they go to the effort of you know, killing a venomous reptile? So they just let them loose. Mm-hmm. Here is my analogy to this. Now, I don't know this for certain, but I suspect that part of the reason the ATF doing, is doing this is because they want people to have fewer guns. I can't prove it, but it's just a feeling I have. And, okay, maybe the ATF itself doesn't feel that way, but they're being pressured from the government. But here's the problem. If, well, right now, with the interchangeability of uppers, you buy one lower, and then you have a bunch of uppers. So you can only have, at any one time, one working rifle unless you buy more lowers. But if the uppers are going to be treated as rifles as well, you might as well just buy the entire rifle again. Mm-hmm. Which means, effectively, more guns in circulation. Because instead of having a bunch of uppers and one lower, which means one functional rifle, you will have a bunch of functional rifles. And then that gets into the whole, oh, well, now you have an arsenal. Oh, that's scary. And and that, I think, is going to be one of the many unintended consequences of this if it comes to pass. Mm-hmm. That's, that is one of the instances that we see in uh, in Massachusetts is that essentially you have households that have no guns and you have households that have like guns counted in the dozens because if we're going to be paying for this permit that we need to maintain just to have a shotgun, I'm not going to be maintaining a permit for a shotgun. I'm either going to sell or trash the shotgun and just not worry about the permit or I am just going to keep buying more and more guns and just collect guns because I'm paying for it anyway, so I might as well just get more guns. <laughs> but also another angle is that the United States is not Massachusetts. It's not California. It's not that. Like fiddling with just the law and just sidestepping stuff. This is, I, I don't know. The Supreme Court has been well known for making making their decisions very, very, very na- narrow. They're very laser focused on that. So if this ca- came to a U.S. Supreme Court decision, I suspect they would just simply say, no, this isn't a, a legitimate ruling or, or whatever. This needs to, this needs to, this is, this is drastic enough that it needs to be an act of Congress. Uh, and that would probably be the end of it. But boy, it would be awful nice to suddenly just say, no, no, the ATF doesn't just get to define guns and define law. This is this is the job of Congress. If if you want to change how a gun's going, present a bill and, and, and set it up through the ranks and see how well that goes. And suffer the consequences later in an election, mm-hmm. which is why the situation is as it presently is. Because of the doctrine of Chevron deference, we can have the unelected regulators make their own regulations to enforce, and that way the politicians don't suffer from that uh, come election time. It suits everyone very nicely, except, of course, for the people. Mm -hmm. And again, it being the ATF and not Congress, again, when the 1994 assault weapons ban was passed, gun companies 
produced firearms that were compliant. They found that, hey, if you take a standard Colt AR-15 and number one, you change the name because it was illegal for the Colt AR-15 to exist. I don't, I don't, I don't think Colt was actually making AR-15s as far as catalog num- names go uh, at the time of, of the 1994 assault women's ban. But maybe I'm wrong on that. That was when they started with the the, the Colt word salad uh, numbers uh, for uh, for for carbines. But the instead they they called it not an AR-15. And they ground off the bayonet lug and they took off the flash hider and then they pinned a muzzle brake to the end of it. And ta-da, that is a, and and if it had an adjustable stock, they put a fixed stock on it. That is a band compliant gun. Congratulations. We, we stopped, we stopped doing the stuff you don't want us to do. And of course that infuriated. Loophole. Yep. But so now Mara Healy specifically states that, Hey, we, I can't tell them how I'm how I'm interpreting the law because if I tell them how I'm interpreting the law they're going to they're going to obey my wishes. Mm-hmm. So instead I'm go- you just it, it goes into the black box and then and then the 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 thumbs up or the thumbs down comes out of the black box. And uh interestingly enough of course the black box is the same law as the 1994 assault weapons ban and interestingly enough which again which makes the the warman versus healy court case so much more heartbreaking that the supreme court punted on it is literally some of the firearms that she has okayed you can still buy both a 1022 or a smith the wesson m&p 1522 22 rimfire firearms are exempted from her uh from her assault weapons ban I have not heard if anybody asks if the non-band compliant versions of those guns, if you could get a 1022 with a folding stock and a threaded barrel, would that still be allowed since you're now claiming that 22 can't be uh, an assault weapon? But furthermore, I actually sat down and read the entirety of the federal assault weapons ban, of which I will note is astronomically shorter than this stupid memo. And... Literally, it has one reference to firearm caliber in it. And do you know what that reference is, Aaron? 22 long rifle? Nope. It says caliber is irrelevant. It essentially oh. is saying that you can't suddenly chamber an, an AR-15 in 224 and uh and and that and that would or 222 and suddenly have have it be, oh, it's not an AR-15 anymore, because AR-15 is in 223, 556. Five, and so that's the only thing it says. So literally, she is making a ruling and stating it, stating the grounds for it, and it's not written anywhere in the law. So, but again, because Massachusetts allows such things to happen, it, it's still it's still going on. And uh, so I, I think that's the whole point: is if Congress tried to pass this, they would need to tell us what they were doing. ATF is not going to tell us what they're doing, and I think that's where the that's where the shenanigans are going to show up. How much longer is in Mara Healy's term? Uh, she's actually planning to run for governor. Uh, well, I mean, my thought was she can't hold the position forever. And because what she issued was regulatory and not legislative, when she's out of office, yes, I understand this is Massachusetts. Probably another anti-gunner will take her place. But it is at least theoretically possible mm-hmm. that... A new AG c- could result in a loosening of these garbage restrictions. 
in theory, but I will also point out that the Massachusetts uh, handgun uh, safety roster, and it's called a safety roster for a reason. It was also pushed forward by the uh, by the attorney general, not as a gun control law, but as a consumer protection act. And so therefore stating that, oh, well, you can't buy Glock handguns because Glock handguns are too dangerous to to be sold to the public. And uh but I bet they're still on the hip of every state trooper in Massachusetts. Uh, most of them, though. Th- th- there's quite a few of them that have M and P's for for obvious reasons. But yes, no. There's Bo- Boston PD uses Glocks. Uh, my hometown also uses Glocks. But it is it is it is the sa- is the safety roster, and that was put put up by uh, Tom Riley. And uh, there there have been two attorney generals since. Uh, or there's been one attorney general between Tom Riley and Mara Healy. So as a general rule, when the new attorney general comes in, unless they are specifically running on a, on a platform of sweeping house, they are just going to be, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Mm-hmm. And then of course okay. also she's running for governor. Yeah. I think we've talked this thing to death. I'm already bored of it. Yes, I, I, I concur. Okay. So let us just drastically shift gears. Some preppers wonder what friendship could be, but Xander is here to share its magic with me and you. Welcome to Xander's Independent Thoughts with yours truly, Xander Opal. For some reason, preppers tend to hold up the lone survivalist as the one to emulate. John Rambo, Burt Grummer, to name two popular examples. However, as the poet said, no man is an island. Humans are social beings, and when we need help, we turn to our friends and acquaintances. For example, when we need to find a new job, or we need help moving. Furniture, swords, that sort of thing. Yet, we've all known that one guy who only reaches out when he needs help. That's quite the opposite of a healthy friendship. There's nothing in that well to draw on. Well, how to not be that guy? First, uh, be generous. I don't mean extravagant gifts, I mean the little things. Coffee now and then, or lending a hand with something. Maybe just a little advice is sought, and you know just what to offer. People can tell when you're trying to buy their favor, and that just isn't healthy. This blends into offering moments of kindness. Sometimes someone just needs a friendly, non-judging, or supportive ear. I come from a culture where, if you say to someone, how are you, you mean it, and want to know the truth. Speaking of truth, be honest with your friends, not blunt and tactless mind, but don't string them along. That kind of thing will turn around and bite you in the long run and cost you all the good things you're trying to build. When you find people you can be honest with and who reciprocate, that tends to generate quite a bit of loyalty. You know, that thing that gets people to stand together in times of adversity to keep one going when they're down. Again, this sort of thing is a two-way street. Loyalty and honesty go go hand in hand, and you get what you give. As the joke goes, be the sort of friend in the next jail cell over going, That was awesome! Speaking of jokes, a bit of laughter goes a long way in bonding. I find a good way to stay in touch with a good friend is to forward them memes that make them laugh. Good times together are bonding times. And, look, we've come full circle back into, into generosity again. This formula isn't magic by any means, just a summary of the lessons of friendship I've discovered the hard way, and some the easy way by the advice of others. In the end, you're not building a network of names on a Rolodex, or people to manipulate like a game of chess. You're making friends, and lifting everyone up. And in my book, 
The best solutions in life lift everyone up. Have fun. Be safe. I hope you gave... Uh, have fun. Be safe. I hope I gave you something to think about. I stumble over that phrase, and this is number 23? Oh, for goodness sake. Oh, well. Hey, weird. Guess what? I don't have any extra work for you as far as links. Bye. You know, Weird, friendship isn't all big adventure and tons of fun. Sometimes it's as simple as faithfully sharing kindness, and there's a strength in that which I find beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I, I've got to say, we all know the person who is not kind and generous, and, and they're, they're, they're not a nice person to the people they interact with in the community. And uh, when they fall on tough times, there is nobody there to help them. Meanwhile, people that are like super good and generous have to turn away help. And uh, I, I hope he doesn't mind me talking about this, but, uh, but Chance from the uh, Say Uncle blog uh, unfortunately just lost his house in a house fire. And oh, damn. I didn't know, I know. that. It's awful. It was that and on the, like, a few, a few weeks from like, the anniversary of his wife's death. I mean, it's really been a tough oh. time for him. And literally, he put up a post on Facebook of the thank you so much for all the outpouring of hope and, and, and help that you guys have all done for me. But I find that it is, it is comforting for me to get stuff done. And so I'm just tucking my head down and I'm solving these problems and that's making me feel better. So, so thank you for all the offerings of help. But right now, I'll let you know if I need any. And so literally he's turning help away because he's like, I, I got this. And, uh, and that's the way he's, he's dealing with all this. But I mean, he's a kind and generous, a wonderful man. And I, I feel so bad for him. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so when, when essentially just being a good member of the community is, is absolutely one of the greatest preps. And I mean, Aaron, I think you've talked a whole bunch about prepping. Just don't go it alone. Oh, exactly. I mean, I, I'm not entirely sure where Xander gets the notion that, that preppers idolize the lone wolf. I mean, it, it, it's out there, but, but those are like the entry-level preppers. People who have been at this for a long time realize not just the strength of community, but the necessity of it. You literally cannot do everything. Mm -hmm. You have to sleep sometime. Yeah. And, you know, the lone wolves will, in my opinion, uh, work themselves to exhaustion or leave themselves vulnerable. You need someone to watch your back. You need someone to help you with things because no one is truly self-sufficient. And, and that's, that's the problem. There's this myth, unfortunately, of, of the self-sufficient man. And you can be very sufficient but you can never be completely self-sufficient because you know um well let's look at money if you want to buy something you have to have someone from whom you buy it you need that other person mm -hmm. um the only individuals that i'm really aware of that are successfully self-sufficient are wild animals and they have short, sometimes awful lives. And even then, the the herbivores travel in packs or herds. Uh, a lot of the carnivores travel in pack. And, you know, you've got a lot of species that, that mate for life. So even then, they don't go it alone. 
so yeah, the whole concept of I'm a lone wolf, I don't need anybody is really super dangerous. Yeah. And I, I, I caution anyone against that with just all, all the strength I have. It's like, no, this is a bad idea. Do not do this. Plus also, if there's if there's nobody on your team, then the, the, the chance of getting so that you start seeing everybody as an adversary again will make you the the problematic person t- in this quote-unquote post-apocalyptic world and you'll be the threat that needs to be eliminated and so yeah you don't want to be in that uh in that situation you know absolutely friendship is magic so as a firearms instructor david has the honor of teaching some shooters for their very first shots for many of us our first shots were a long time ago But David has collected some common misconceptions of firearms new shooters may have and we may have forgotten about. Hi, and welcome to Gun Lovers and Other Strangers. In this segment, I'd like to talk about some of the preconceptions of and about gun owners, specifically the concerns and even fears of newcomers to the firearms community. The other week, I met with a returning student. She just started shooting handguns about four months ago. Prior to that, her only firearms experience was dove hunting with a shotgun. As with many women new to handguns, she took the unfortunately all-too-common advice and bought a snub-nosed 38 caliber revolver. At our first lesson together, she found out why this was not a great idea. With her hand size, she could barely reach the trigger for a double-action pull. With her hand strength, she couldn't comfortably accomplish that long, heavy trigger pull either. When we got out on the range, she fired two or three shots and was done. It was just too uncomfortable. After some conversation on the sales floor, where I had her handle and dry fire a few different options, she selected a Smith & Wesson Easy Polymer Frame Semi-Automatic. While there are several other pistols on the market that could have met her requirements as well, she still made a good choice. After her experience with the 38, she was quite apprehensive when we took her 380 Easy onto the range. Following her first few shots, she looked over with a big smile. She's been back for several more lessons and is improving in both accuracy and comfort. At our last session, a customer was shooting a rifle on another lane. She was startled by the muzzle blast from each shot and asked what he was shooting. I glanced over and saw it was an AR carbine in 5.56 or 2.23. This was followed by a brief discussion on the differences between her 380 and the 223 Remington. The owner of the rifle overheard part of our conversation and, as is so often the case in the firearm community, offered to let her try out his rifle. Once again, she was apprehensive because she associated the loud muzzle blast with heavy recoil. But after some more discussion, this time using her experience with shotguns as a point of comparison, she gave it a try. She's now considering adding an AR to her stable of firearms. Yes, both of these examples involve the same person, but it's something I've seen repeated many, many times over the years. A new shooter not only doesn't have the knowledge or experience to make educated decisions, but they also have the disadvantage of hearing so much that exaggerated or simply isn't true. It's effectively the firearm equivalent of learning about sex on the street corner. To revisit a contrasting example from an earlier segment, several years ago, when we still lived in upstate New York, Some family members came for a visit from New York City. One of the things some of them wanted to do was visit my local shooting range. As usual, I started them out with my Ruger 1022. Everyone who chose to shoot had fun. I then pulled out one of my New York legal AR-15s with a 22 rimfire conversion kit installed. 
At the sight of this, one of my cousins immediately recoiled and refused to shoot it because she thought it looked too scary. This preconception persisted even after I showed her it shot the same ammunition as the rifle she had just enjoyed, and my petite wife fired it with no issues. Because of the media-implanted association that AR-15s are somehow more dangerous than other firearms, she was scared and intimidated. As an educator and enthusiast, it's my responsibility to pass along the most accurate information I can in the clearest and most unintimidating manner possible. There's a delicacy in disabusing someone of their beliefs in various firearm mythos without making them feel like they're being spoken down to, attacked, or insulted. I know I'm not always sufficiently delicate in my attempts to educate, but that's still my goal. Online, I regularly see people referred to as Boomer or Millennial or Snowflake after expressing an unpopular opinion or repeating some item of firearm lore. In my experience, insulting or attacking someone over a preference, or because they repeated erroneous information, isn't helping anyone. Sure, it may give the, for lack of a better term, aggressor an endorphin rush, especially if their friends pile on to support and congratulate them, but it's not helpful. This is distinct from arguing on the internet, which Larry Correa correctly refers to as a spectator sport. No links this time, weird. You're off the hook. For now. That about wraps up this segment. If you have any questions for me or suggestions for future segments or a comment on a past segment, please post them on the Assorted Calibers podcast Facebook page and Aaron or Weird will make sure I get them. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. I'm David and this is Gun Lovers and Other Strangers. Yeah, many people don't know what they don't know. Uh, this actually one of the things that reminded me of of this whole thing was was when I was fairly early. I think I just I just learned how to shoot, and I was just taking to reading about guns because yeah, I couldn't afford any of that stuff. And, uh, and actually, at the time, I didn't realize that like I wasn't even twenty one. So the nineteen eleven that I wanted so bad, I they wouldn't even sell it to me. But I remember reading about. Uh, essentially cartridges for the for the federal assault weapons ban and i learned that oh the 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 ar-15 is in you know the 5.56 a military you know cartridge and it was too powerful for hunting you know there was all sorts of jokes about like somebody hunting with uh with, with assault weapons i remember seeing a cartoon like the local paper like oh yeah look at me i got that critter you know, people say we can't hunt with these assault weapons. And they looked and there's like just a pile of like smoking fur on the ground. Yeah, I wonder what kind of critter it was. <laughs> and I realized that uh, my uncle, like all through my childhood, my uncle just in his computer room, I'd go in with my cousins and we'd play, we'd play computer games on his computer. And hanging over the computer was his 30-06 deer rifle. And uh, yeah, it was no big deal. And, uh, but it's one of those, like you always heard about the 30 out six deer gun. And I realized how <laughs> that the 30 out six is perfectly okay for shooting a deer, but a two, two, three Remington is far too overpowered. <laughs> and, and that was, that was one of those like big turning points of the, you lied to me. And, and that goes without the irony that it was years, years later that I realized that 30-06 is purely a military cartridge. It was, it was designed specifically f uh, for the improved, you know, 19, you know, 1903 Springfield. And, uh, and, and yet the, uh, the 5.56 NATO 
before before it entered into military service was the lowly 223 Remington, which was a small game cartridge. It was a hunting cartridge. And so ugh, just <laughs> the number of misconceptions out there and just lies that we can be fed and people just take them to heart. Last week, you heard him tell you what's wrong with gun safes. This week, Tom Kubinick of Securit is back to tell you how he devised his patented storage system. So I would like to welcome back to the Assorted Calibers podcast, Tom Kubinick. He is the CEO of Securit Tactical. And uh, of course, we previously heard him talk about his uh, the products that his company makes. But uh, in reading the byline on Securit Capital, I heard that Tom got his start as a professional guitar player. And let me tell you, I just, I, I had to ask, Tom, tell me about this. How how does one go from being a professional guitar player to the CEO of uh, of Secure at Tactical? It's 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 a long uh, story with a lot of humor in it at, at, at various points. But it's uh, I was a guitar player in high school. I was playing in bands when I was in high school, and I immersed myself to where I played six eight hours a day. That's all I did. In fact, my parents kicked me out of the house because all I did was play guitar. Um, I didn't go to college. I just played in bands in. Uh, in 1984, Guitar Player Magazine, which was the magazine of the day, did an article on me as one of the uh, up-and-coming, you know, unknown best guitar players out there kind of a thing. And it really kind of got me out there. I, I ended up relocating to Hollywood and uh, started playing with people in California. I got hooked up with some guys, and I was doing some instructional videos on my practice routine and what I did to become proficient at a very young age. Um, and I made a I made a uh, physical mistake, we'll say, of doing this every day. It's almost like a twenty minute workout for a guitar, and I was really focused on the mechanics of guitar and teaching this. And I blew out my my uh, forearms. I got tendonitis. That was so bad. I took you know three four months off. I took a year off, and I came to the realization that I was never going to be a guitar player. I can't I can't play guitar for long enough to perform in a band. Um, it, it went made for a very difficult few years, but I took a job telemarketing. Uh, this is funny printer ribbons. And you, people don't know what those are if you're if you're really young. But it used to be people would type in the typewriters and print on these mechanical printers that use ribbons. And it was a you know six in the morning till about noon job. I drove a I took a bus from Hollywood over to the valley, and because uh, I had no other skills, and started doing that. I was horrible at it. They moved me to a non-sales job, so I, uh, but I could see where the money was being made in commission. So I quit and worked for another company and learned how to sell. And two years later, quit that job with two other people, and we started a telemarketing company in a in an apartment in a really lousy neighborhood in the San Fernando Valley, um, selling computer supplies. And we were, I mean, we were three crazy kids. I had hair down past my waist. Um, with our offices for three cardboard boxes, we pull out in the morning and with three phones and start making phone calls. And uh, we built that company. We ended up getting a small office, hiring a few people. A couple of years later, we had 18 sales reps. I sold, I sold the business to my partners because we just kind of were going in different directions. It wasn't a difficult, like nasty breakup. We just decided to part ways. And I started Greenline Data, which I ran solo. It's the same type of business. And I got into web development in the late 90s, in the early days of the internet, just as a hobby and started building websites. And we, I started building websites for my company 
and took a different idea of instead of selling computer supplies, which is what we were selling via the web because everybody was kind of doing that, I started making websites for all sorts of products just to see if I could get something to, to show up. And I created a website selling tape racks, which are the, the uh, they're metal racks that hold computer tapes. Because back in the 90s, early 2000s, people had to back up their computer systems on tapes. And big companies had thousands and thousands of these backup tapes they had to save. So these big racking systems. And we started getting hits for that. And I created taperack.com, which became, we became one of the largest sellers of computer tape racks and tape storage in the country as an e-com. So a very early e-com. That morphed into laptop storage when the HIPAA laws came out for uh, hospitals had to lock up all hard drives with medical data had to be locked up. So we worked with one of the manufacturers to develop a cabinet for storing laptops and started selling a lot of laptop cabinets. And in 2001, I got a phone call from a guy who says, can you store an MP5? I'm like, sure. What's an MP5? He started laughing. He goes, it's a little machine gun. And I started laughing. I thought about it. I go, well, sure, we could do that. I don't see any reason why not. And we started looking at firearms and weapons storage. And as we looked at it, we realized the military was going through a real challenge. They were transitioning from an M16 to the M4, which is really a traditional rifle to what we would call the weapon system. The M16 was a simple rifle. They were all the same. The M4, depending if it was if it was special forces, if it was SEAL teams, if it was big army or Marine Corps, were all configured differently. Different barrel lengths, different stocks, different optics. And the weapon storage, the racks that they had, had no capacity to hold these. So we started developing with a company in Canada a storage solution and started selling into the military. We started getting some success doing it. Um, and then I'm going to say we semi-BSed our way into a contract with USAFIC, U.S. Army Special Forces Command. Um, that organization no longer exists in the military. It's all part of the SOCOM Special Forces community. We were up against some really big global um, defense contractors, and it was a contract to do an assessment on U.S. Special Forces armories, why they're failing, and make recommendations to improve them. We were a three-person company, and we got the contract. And it was during that next two years that we traveled all over the country visiting all the armories. We had, we had access you don't normally get, interviewed armorers, and really spent a lot of time looking at these problems and we came up with a solution, which was our cradle grid technology. And it was out of that contract that we developed the solution. We presented it. They loved it. And very quickly, we revolted to the primary supplier to the U.S. military for weapon storage. So tell me about the, the cradle grid system. It's a very simple two-piece system. Now, I always, when, I, when I did my original talk to the military, to the, to the command, I opened up with, if you got a junk drawer in your kitchen... What do you keep in it? You got a hammer, a pair of pliers, maybe some duct tape and a screwdriver. You keep the simplest tools because with those you can solve the most problems. So we developed Cradle Grid as what's the simplest tool, simplest thing we can develop to store firearms and the associated gear. Because in the military, it's not just firearms. It's also all the gear that goes with them. And our Cradle Grid system is that simple. We also we went to Home Depot and Lowe's walk the aisles to see how does America store stuff. We coined the term Home Depot development for how we did our early product development. And our system is compatible with a lot of the storage components you can buy in any hardware store. And the system is, it's not a weapon rack, it's a tool. It is a cabinet, but the insides is a tool with which the armorer 
can build the system he specifically needs. The um, the Marine Corps are out in Pendleton, they called it the Tetris rack, you know, because they would just start at the bottom and start building. And the guys at Bragg, it was, it was third group in Bragg, called it the Lego rack. Again, it was a it's a system where they could identify what they've got to store and just on the fly build the system, the internal components of the cabinet very, very quickly. And that's the same system that we brought to the consumer market because the consumer market is going through the same problem of my grandfather hunted with a lever gun and he had a box of ammo. Nowadays, you've got people with you know multiple ARs, different optics. If you're building ARs, you got parts going everywhere because you always end up with lots of extra stuff. Every, the, the, the volume of gear associated with consumer firearms is growing exponentially. You know, we have one of the only systems out there that actually identifies that as, a, as, a, as an issue and gives you solutions to store and integrate gear with your firearms in an organized manner. Oh, that's cool. And, and this is the same technology you use for your, uh, for your gun wall uh, technology, right? It is. It is. It's, uh, it's funny. I've got, you know, I've got a system in my home. I've got a home studio still. I still play. And uh, the system also holds guitars. We started off talking about music, and uh, I've got several vintage and funky guitars hanging in my basement in my studio, along with a whole bunch of old sniper rifles. Yep. Oh, that's yeah, that's cool. And also, yeah, just as the the whole gun wall thing, that's that's kind of a, a pipe dream. So, so, so someday I'll I'll build out a house, and uh, and they'll just be uh, instead of the gun the gun safe. Yeah, the gun safe is my gun room. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> just unlock un- un- unlock the door and there's a secure area and just hang the stuff on the walls. Yeah, it's uh, you know what, it's the system works great and it's interesting because you know I grew up in a home with without firearms mm-hmm. and I came into this industry based on a phone call about storing an MP5, which I didn't know what an MP5 was. Now I had shot firearms. I actually, as a kid, as a camper in in Boy Scout camp, I was actually I, I won the I won the competition for marksmanship. So I had a natural ability for it, but I really wasn't part of it. And one of our advantages early on was we developed our first weapon storage system, not really knowing that much about certainly in the military, knowing that much about the military system. The, the again, we were a three person company. Nobody, none of us had ever been in the military. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, people say, wow, you're thinking outside the box. And I always said, actually, we didn't know there was a box. You know, we, we came at it from such a different uh, perspective because we weren't part of it. And I think sometimes in, in general, it's so it's when people are trying to solve problems, it's really good to either try to get yourself outside or find somebody outside of the problem who has no capac- no reference points to it and bring them into the conversation and, and get their perspective because it's we all naturally in business, everybody gets tunnel vision. Mm-hmm. You know, they we're, we're all biased by what we see and do every day. And it's, you know, our success now is based on creativity. You know, we, we've got a great little company where Inc. Magazine, one of the fastest growing companies in America. And, you know, it's not because I'm some crazy business guy. I'm not, I'm a guitar player, but I've built it. We've got this company full of people who are all allowed to be creative. That's one of the big focuses for this company. Innovate and simplify. Everybody is creative. Come up with ideas and then simplify them down to the simplest piece you can make. And uh, it just works. The, the, the company, we're, we're a remote company now with uh, in the COVID world, and we're not going back to the office. We are, uh, you know, we're growing quickly. Now we're, as a decentralized company, as a non office-based company. We're now hiring people. I'm building a team in Phoenix. I'm building a team in 
uh, Austin. We've got a marketing down Austin. And then we've got people in the Chattanooga, kind of a Tennessee, uh, Georgia area. So we're just looking at kind of building cells, building pods of uh, or teams around the country. And for us, it absolutely works. We've got good technology. We communicate through video. And uh, it's going to be an exciting few years coming forward. Well, that is a, an amazing origin story. I, 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 when I saw that, I'm like, I, I bet he's got a story about this, and, and oh boy, you do. Uh, and uh, before we go, I, I, I would be remiss to have all this music talk. Give me, like, say your top five uh, guitar influences uh, when you when you first started playing and, and going up through through the industry. Um, well, the, my main influence is something many people wouldn't know. It's Uric Roth, Yuli John Roth, the German guitar player. He played with the Scorpions early on before they became commercially successful in the u.s he went on he's he's a very much hendrix influence Jimi mm-hmm. hendrix was certainly a big influence um eddie van halen I, I play nothing like eddie van halen i don't try to but he came out of the gate when van halen came out it was like they were so over the top mm-hmm. um you know there that was a big influence maybe i'm just being a metalhead not being not a guitar player I've listened to a lot of Iron Maiden and Judas Priest back in the day. In fact, I play I played in an Iron Ma- Maiden Judas Priest cover band, and I played in a Deep Purple cover band um, all over the East Coast. That, I was pretty young. That was a lot of fun. Well, those are, those are all great groups, and those are all groups that you cannot hack your way through. They're 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 all very very tight bands. Well, thank you so much, Tom, for uh, for coming back on the show, and I really appreciated the stories you had to tell. All right, thank you very much. Yeah, I had to know like <laughs> how do you go from a from a guitar player to to that? And also, again, guy runs a gun storage company and he got it started with the what's an MP5. <laughs> Shows that just determination and willing to learn, you could you could become a leader in your field. What I thought was funny was that when you were asking him about influences in music, I I was just imagining in my mind you having this conversation with Ryan Machad of Handgun Radio and you telling him about it because Ryan is really big into music and there be some sort of and there be some sort of, you know, music geeking out by him. So I don't know if that's going to happen, but honestly that was the only thing I could think of. It's like wait till I tell Ryan about this. <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty cool. Also, I I did a little bit of of looking up of Uli John Roth. I, I've actually got a a, vi- a video of his. I, I must say, his guitar style is not my absolute favorite. But I was wondering if he was saying, "Oh, people hadn't heard of it," and I was immediately thinking, given he was a metal guitar of Ingwe Malmsteen, uh, which I'm trying to remember even know what group he is. But he's just he's a a, a metal guitar virtuoso, and. Uh, and I was just like, oh, he didn't mention that. That's not the name I was expecting. And uh, uh, looked it up. And of of the major guitar players uh, out there, uh, Ingwe Maldstein cites Uli John Roth as one of his key influencers. So <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, good stuff. And, and for those that don't know of, of, of how much metal uh, Deep Purple can shred, if, if all you know about Deep Purple is smoke on the water, you need to listen to more of them. Thanks to each and every one of our listeners, and a very special thanks to all our supporters on Patreon. To go on Patreon, Patreon, go to patreon.com slash Assorted Calibers podcast to sign up. Patrons get an early release of the podcast, plus bonus content like the hilarious blooper reels, the ACP film tracks, and the ACP mag dump. Also, please remember to rate us on Apple Podcasts. 
subscribe to us on the platform of your choice, and share the show with your friends both online and off. You can get more from me at my blog, which is weirdworld.com. That's W-E-E-R-D world.com. And you can hear me weekly on Handgun Radio on the Firearms Radio Network. And, of course, you can find me in all the usual places, blazingsword.org, pinkpistols.org, lurking rhythmically, and blue-collar prepping, both at Blogspot. And, of course, you are listening to the dulcet tones of Nate Spencer. <laughs> um, I, I'm pretty sure that's not the proper use of dulcet, but all right, fine, I'll let it slide. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> I don't care enough to argue the point. You know what? I don't care enough to argue the point, but weird usually does. Our arguing styles are assorted, and so is our podcast. Good night, everybody. Aaron out. (laughs) That's so on the nose, Aaron. (laughs) Good night. Good night.